Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. We talk a lot about drug trials here on the Endpoints Podcast, but what really defines a drug trial? How do they work? And how can you or your loved ones participate in one? Today, on Endpoints, ALS TDI CEO Dr. Steve Perrin joins us to answer these and other frequently asked questions about how the process works and what you can and can't expect when you sign up to participate. Just start out with a really basic question. Uh, what is a clinical trial? A clinical trial is a way that, a clinical trial is an experiment <laughs> in, in most aspects. It, it kind of depends what stage of trial you're at, um, but cl- a clinical trial is testing a new potential therapeutic, usually, although devices are also in clinical trials to see if it has an impact on some aspect of a disease, maybe a treatment, it could be understanding, uh, you know, whether a new drug is, a drug is working different compared to standard of care drugs. Uh, but typically it's looking at the effect of a new device or potential medication in a specified patient population. Mm-hmm. And what are, what are the goals of a clinical trial? It depends upon the stage and the design. Um, So clinical trials can have lots of different goals. Some trials are trying to see if a new therapeutic can change a disease course. Uh, Sometimes one is looking to see if a biomarker is correlated with some aspect of the disease. Um, Sometimes you're looking to see if a drug is safe in early stages of clinical trials. Uh, So it kind of depends on what stage you're at. So then let's talk about the stages. What are the different stages of a clinical trial? So I'm going to cover them in big buckets from 10,000 feet. And if we need to get more granular, we can. So phase one studies tend to be first what we call first in human studies. Uh, So phase one studies are typically the first time that either a device or a new medication is moving from testing in either cells or animals in a lab into people. Often phase one studies are done in healthy volunteers, but that's not always the case. Uh, They can also be done in a very targeted patient population where you're going to do subsequent clinical trials. But the major goal of a phase one study is safety. They tend to be fairly small trials. They tend to do dose escalation, starting at fairly low doses that you have data to support that you're going to be very safe. And then you cautiously dose escalate up to what we'll call our therapeutic range. It's where you'd like to get your dosing in further downstream trials. So that's phase one. Small, tend to be addressing safety, tend to be dose escalating across multiple doses, usually a fairly large number. If your safety data looks good and you haven't seen any things that would preclude you from wanting to go forward, your next stages of clinical trials tend to be what we call phase two trials. And phase two trials are the ones that come in lots of different strategies and designs, but I'm just going to kind of be generic and say phase two trials are starting to move into your targeted disease indication. So you're no longer really working in healthy volunteers for the most part. You've now taken the information from your phase one and you've designed a study in your target patient population. You're typically still doing dose escalation here. I mean, unless you really understand what your dose needs to be in your next stages of studies, your goal here is to try to understand what your dose range might be. And you could be basing this on clinical endpoints, slowing down of disease progression. You could be doing it based on a biomarker, but typically you wanna see a change over a smaller number of doses 
compared to the number of doses you put in your phase one study. So your, your goal here on a phase two study is dose selection. These tend to be larger studies than phase one. They, they can be still small, 30 or 40 subjects, but they can also be quite large, a couple hundred patients. It depends upon the heterogeneity of your patient population, the number of doses that you're testing, how good your biomarkers are that you're looking at, because that plays into the statistics of how many people you need per group. Um, but that's kind of what phase two is all about. It's about dose selection and trying to get to the right dose for your larger studies because then you'll need fewer patients in your large studies. So that brings you to, I'll kind of bucket into what I'll call phase 2B and phase 3 studies. These are the pivotal studies that you're going to go and utilize to present your data to the FDA and say, hey, my drug is working. We should think about an approval process. These tend to be much, much bigger studies. They tend to be single-dose studies. If you can get down to a single dose, it's going to require fewer subjects. They tend to be placebo-controlled, much like the Phase two studies would tend to be placebo-controlled. Um, depending upon your indication, that can vary on ratios from anywhere from a 1 to 1 placebo drug group all the way to 5 to 1. Uh, it really depends upon your design. Uh, Often these are longer studies, unlike phase two studies, which could be anywhere between 30 days and you know six months in a typical ALS study. These tend to be longer studies because you're looking to see if they truly either slow down disease, improve survival. They tend to be six months to 18 month studies in a typical ALS study. And this is the data that you're gonna to present to the FDA to think about an approval process. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned uh, placebo groups. Can you talk a little bit more about what a placebo group is? So placebos are subjects that are going to not actually get the actual treatment. That's going to look very similar to the treatment as far as rotative administration, or if it's an orally available drug such as a pill, the pill will look identical so that people can't tend to tell if they're on drug or on the placebo. But it's not drug. It's water, if you will. Um, and and. To most phase two trials and phase three trials tend to have placebo groups. Not all phase twos, but many of them do. And why do they have them? So placebo groups help understand whether your data is actually real or not. There's this thing called placebo effect where you know a patient comes in and they're looking for hope and they want to see that a drug is working. Often you'll have these periods of placebo effect where folks think that they're getting better even though they're not truly on a medication. So we use this from a statistical perspective to truly understand whether the actual treatment group is getting benefit for or not at the end of the study. So we call these randomized placebo controlled studies where the physicians don't know who's on placebo, the patients don't know who's on placebo, and at the end of the study, the database gets locked down, they'll unmask the data to the people that need to understand who's who, and then the statisticians will actually look at the data to see if the drug is actually working better than the placebo group. And sometimes the placebo group could be standard of care. So if there's already an FDA-approved treatment out there, um, typically you wouldn't give people water as the placebo group. The placebo group would be standard of care. And there you're trying to measure whether your new drug is better than standard of care. So in the context of an ALS study, we would often not put people on placebo. We'll allow them to take either Radicava or Roliatec, both of which are FDA approved drugs, and compare them to our new therapy on top of those drugs. Um, and then if a drug has maybe shown promise, but um, the studies come to an end, are people able to still get access to it? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. That's up to the sponsor of the study. So extended access after a trial is over really is dependent upon 
Well, first of all, if the safety doesn't look good, the answer to that is usually no. If there's any safety issues, usually they would shut down the study, try to understand what those safety issues are. Are they drug-related, non-drug-related? And then they can make some decisions about uh, continuing people having access to the drug after the study ends. If the drug is safe, that decision's really up to the sponsor. And there's lots of different decisions on why one would or would not offer these open-ended, extended studies after the trial's over. Some of it is financial, unfortunately. Do you have a drug? Can you afford to give everybody that was in the study drug? Sometimes the answer to that is no. Um, sometimes the drug is hard to administer and the sponsor can no longer afford to have patients go into the clinic to receive however the drug is administered. So it's really up to the sponsor on whether there's an extended access program to the drug. Tend to be very common in small molecules, which tend to be a little cheaper to manufacture in bulk, uh, easier to administer because you swallow them. Less common if it's a fairly invasive technology to administer the drug. Uh, so the extended access really depends. It's a case-by-case -case basis. And that's what you'd call an open-label extension, right? Correct, yes. Um, and how would someone who wants to participate in clinical trials find out about trials that are you know, relevant to them? There's a couple of different ways. I mean, clinicaltrials.gov is an online tool that kind of monitors you know, you have to register a trial in clinicaltrials.gov if, if it's phase two or beyond. You don't have to if it's phase one, but you're encouraged to. Um, so that's one good way to do it. And you can Google, you can search clinicaltrials.gov with all types of filters and keywords to try to hone down on types of medications, types of diseases, what stage the trial's at. Another way is to, the best way actually is to talk to your clinic, right? If you have a specific disease and you're interested in participating in a clinical trial, the best resource you have to understand whether there's something available to you is to talk to your team, your medical team. Um, and, and there are variabilities clinic to clinic. So if you do want to participate in a clinical study and your current clinic that you're going to is not adept at running studies, you can go look for another clinical team. You don't have to basically stay at the same team. Obviously, if you live in New York, you have multiple different clinics that you could go to. If you live in the middle of nowhere, you might be more limited there. But the best way to understand if you have ability to enroll in a study is to talk to your clinical team. Mm -hmm. um, and then when it's specifically uh, for ALS, are there resources that, that people can access that list clinical trials specifically for the disease? Sure. So I mentioned clinicaltrials.gov as being the government repository for that. But companies like ours or ALS Therapy Development Institute, as an example, mirrors clinicaltrials.gov. And we also try to update it more frequently than they do. So typically when you're searching for studies and you find one, it'll tell you which sites across the country are actively enrolling patients in that study. But obviously that's a dynamic process. And so all of a sudden some clinics might shut down because they've completed their enrollment criteria. Um, we update our sites much more frequently at ALS TDI compared to other folks. So we have a great online resource, again, with filtering tools you can go in and try to find what studies are enrolling, where they're enrolling, where there's still opportunities to enroll. Uh, so it's a pretty good resource to understand what's available and what's out there. What should someone um, consider when they are looking for a clinical trial to enroll in? What they should consider personally is what they're looking to achieve. Uh, and, you know, that's some of that is personal decision and some of it is decision on just how aggressive they want to try to manage their disease. A clinical trial is an experiment. Often we don't know if a potential new treatment is going to do harm, if it's going to do good, 
or if it's going to do nothing. So some of it is a personal decision on if you want to enroll in a trial or not based on risk. Some of it is whether you fit the enrollment criteria. You might be too far along in your disease and may no longer be eligible for a specific trial that's enrolling. Um, you have to decide whether you can adhere to all of the guidelines for that specific trial. If a trial needs you to be in the clinic every day for 365 days, that might be really hard for you to manage as a patient versus a different trial that you have to show up on the first day of enrollment, but then you only have to be there once every three months. So you have to specifically look at what your risk benefit ratio is, depending upon what type of drug it is, and whether you fit the inclusion criteria to get into the study, because your clinician isn't going to enroll you in a study if you don't fit. And then finally, you have to decide whether you can actually meet the criteria of clinical visits and other things that the trial might ask you to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally, do people have access to their data during a clinical trial? Typically, no. Uh, typically, no one has access to your data, actually. Um, it's kind of in a locked database that's blinded. So we mentioned a lot about placebo groups, drug groups, dosing levels, typically in a phase two or phase three study that's a placebo control randomized trial. The physicians don't have access to your data. You don't have access to your data. The company doesn't have access to the data until predefined points that were built into the clinical trial. So there could be interim analysis um, points in the trial at say three or six months where at that point in time, the database is locked down. All of the study is unblinded to certain people. You can kind of start to look at your data to see if you're getting the outcomes that you wanted. And meanwhile, the study is continuing for however long it was predefined to continue to. And at the end of the study, the database is locked down again. And then again, all the data becomes unblinded and the people that need to know who's been assigned to what group will get analyzed by the statistical teams that will then determine if you've met your predefined endpoints in your study. So during the study, the physicians typically don't have access to the data, the patients don't have access to the data, and the company does not have access to the data. Um, and how are clinical trials regulated and what's the role of the FDA? So the FDA's mandate is safety, safety first. That's their biggest um, questions that they're going to have to you during this process. And it tends to be somewhat of a linear process, right? When you go in to put your first drug into people, they wanna look at your animal safety data. Do you have enough safety data to actually put this drug into people at the doses that you want to? Then as you get further and further along that you've you know, checked boxes that your safety looks good, there they're talking about design. They want to make sure that your design and your subsequent studies are in the best interest of the patients, that again, safety is your primary key, that you're enrolling the fewest number of subjects in your trial to get the data that you're going to need to make your conclusions. Um, you know, they're really, they're really looking at efficiency of design and the ultimate goal of is the study designed to hit the endpoints that you're saying you're going to make decisions on. But the primary goal of the FDA is safety. Could the FDA potentially approve a drug before a trial is finished? The FDA typically, and yes, it could. There are examples of that. If all of a sudden a drug that's an investigational drug is having a profound impact on the predefined clinical endpoints for the study, they could all of a sudden unblind the study early because the data is really profound 
present that to the FDA, and the FDA could do an immediate early approval of that drug and then do what's called retrospective studies where you're going to follow people along after the study is the study continues. You can actually continue as you roll new people on the drug. Um, but yes, they can intervene in the middle of a study if the data is quite profound. Mm-hmm. Not common. Uh, and can they approve a drug without a clinical trial? Without a clinical trial, I'll give a soft answer of no, but the FDA is amenable to taking clinical trial data from outside the U.S. It doesn't have to be done in the U.S., and it's not uncommon for companies to do studies in other countries, phase one, phase two, and phase three. Sometimes we'll do them in Asia. Sometimes studies are done in South America. Sometimes studies are done in Europe. Sometimes studies are done across the entire globe, U.S., North America, Europe combined. And then sometimes a company may present data from another company to the FDA, and if the data is compelling, they're not obligated to rerun the clinical study in the U.S. as long as the FDA thinks the data is compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and does the FDA have access to the data from a trial during the, during the course of that trial? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a flat-out no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's locked in the box. It's locked in the box. Got it. Um, so besides the FDA, um, who in the, uh, institutions that are running a trial, make sure that the trial is safe. So every trial at every single site has a data safety monitoring committee of some kind of other, which is a bunch of MDs whose fiduciary responsibility is to make sure that we're doing no harm and that the study, not only that the study is designed well, that we have ability to measure whether the drug is safe and that those protocols are being adhered to. So every single individual site will typically have that. There are ways, and that's complicated if you think about it for a second, if it's a big study and there's a hundred different clinics enrolling in the study, to have each individual site have their own safety monitoring board could be quite challenging. Um, There are ways to do that with master teams now where it's kind of centralized not only the review process for the protocol, but also for safety monitoring. And typically that safety monitoring happens at specified times throughout the study. As long as no serious adverse events are happening to people, there's specified times in your protocol where that committee is going to meet and make sure that there have not been any safety issues reported thus far on the study. So what is the ice bucket challenge? So the Ice Bucket Challenge was an amazing social media phenomena that happened in the summer of 2014. Uh, August timeframe probably spilled into the fall. And it was amazing because it kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, it was really directly related to ALS where people challenged themselves on social media to dump a bucket of ice water on their head and make a donation to their favorite ALS Institute. Uh, it raised like $220 million globally in the course of like, let's just say 90 days, which is absolutely amazing. Probably never to be replicated again. Um, and the Ice Bucket Challenge, you know, all of the institutions that basically benefited from that have leveraged and utilized that revenue in amazing, incredible ways, all the way from basic research to identification of biomarkers to helping to push potential therapies into the clinic. And uh, did the Ice Bucket Challenge help any drugs get into clinical trials? I mean, it certainly has helped move drugs into clinical trials. I can't say that it hasn't. But has the Ice Bucket Challenge funded a drug being approved 
for ALS? No, it is not. It has certainly facilitated drugs moving through that process that we've described in this podcast, getting drugs out of the lab into toxicity studies, getting drugs from pre-IND enabling talk studies into phase one, uh, funding early stage phase two studies, but it has not single-handedly led to a drug approval, no. Now, do certain people, say someone who owns stock in a biotech company, have a better chance than others for being selected for a clinical trial? No. Uh, no one. There's no way to manipulate the clinical trial process as far as who's qualified to get into a trial versus who's not, except for do you meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria. I mean, every single clinical trial, if you go on to clinicaltrials.gov or anywhere else, will have very well-defined and specific inclusion-exclusion criteria on if you're eligible for the trial. Those are designed up front. They're agreed upon by all of the sites that will be enrolling in the study. Each site's institutional review board is going to review those criteria, and nobody can manipulate them. So your best friend can't get you into a study. Your neurologist can't do you a favor and get you into a study if you don't qualify those guidelines are incredibly well adhered to. And so just to emphasize that point, there, there's no way to pay your way into a clinical trial. There is no pay to play in clinical trials. I mean, there are examples where if a company has an investigator-initiated drug that they could try to get early access to the drug and pay to play, but it's pretty rare. Um, so are there any ways to improve your chance of being selected for a trial? There's... The best way to improve your way of getting into a clinical trial is to really have an open communication, dialogue, and strategy with your clinical team on what you're looking for. I think you have to be very transparent there. And again, it's this risk-benefit ratio that you have to articulate to your clinical team. Because if your risk-benefit ratio, you want it to be low. In other words, you're a slow-progressing person with ALS and you don't want to subject yourselves to something that's very risky, if you will, because it might be early stage in the development process, there may have been previous reported side effects that you don't want to expose yourself to, then your risk tolerance, if you will, is going to be low, and you're going to want to enroll in either later stage studies where the safety data is more compelling or things that tend to not have been reported of adverse events. If you're a fast progressor and your risk tolerance is high, that's going to totally change the way that you think about what types of trials might be right for you. So thinking about that in talking to your clinical team about your risk tolerance ratio is really critical, I think. Um, so we've covered a lot today. Uh, is there anything else that um, you think people should know about clinical trials? Yeah, I think the best way to summarize this topic, in my opinion, is if you want to participate in clinical trials, it's a really great opportunity to become part of the problem to find an effective treatment for disease. Uh, we can't obviously move uh, potential treatments through the process without participation. Um, so it's really exciting to have an engaged patient community like the ALS community that has always been very adept at wanting to be a part of that process and, you know, being very aggressive about enrolling in trials and being compliant. Uh, that's the other big thing with clinical trials is being compliant. It's a big commitment sometimes, and it's really amazing to see such an engaged community uh, be willing to, to participate in the process of, of identifying new and effective treatments. So that's really a great thing, and we need to thank them for that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. To find out more information about drug trials for ALS, you can visit our website at als.net or check out clinicaltrials.gov and search for ALS.
Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at endpoints at als.net.